Psalms 45. I'll read verse 1, you verse 2. And uh, listen to what we're reading here. And then 500 cool points for anybody that can tell me before I announce. Anybody can tell me what this psalm is about. 5,000, 50,000 cool points if you can tell me what this psalm is about. Look at verse 1. I'll read it. Here we go. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made uh, touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. All right, you got verse 2. Go. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, and with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemy, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest iniquity. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. Y'all are reading, right? Okay. All right, I didn't hear nothing that time. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken. Verse 11. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Anybody want to take a shot? What? Love story. Anybody else want to take a shot? What? And we need to pray for Dale too, brother. I'll tell you that. All right. All right. Here we go. Let's pray. Father, bless your word tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. And I pray you'd help us for just a moment. We kind of just sift around in these verses and to teach us a truth from thy word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For well over a year now in our Wednesday evening services, we have been making our way through the Old Testament book of Psalms. And I've been preaching through the Psalms. The book of Psalms is the longest book of our Bible as far as chapters go. The book of Psalms is the center book of our Bible as the center verse of the whole Bible is Psalms 118 verse number 8. And the book of Psalms is the most often quoted book of the Old Testament 
in the New Testament. Incidentally, Jesus began his public ministry by quoting from the book of Psalms, and Jesus concluded his earthly ministry by quoting from the book of Psalms, a relevant book for the New Testament for our day. Tonight in this series, we're all the way up through the 45th division of this great book. Now, to help us to understand, understand this psalm, once again, we've got to consider the superscription. The superscription is like the key hanging by the door that kind of gives us a background or an understanding of what the psalm is all about. Now, we run into some words that we've already run into before, such as the word maskil. We see that there in the superscription. It is a, uh, uh, for the sons of Korah, maskil. That means instruction or to impart wisdom. Then we read also about a group of people that we bumped into the last two or three Wednesday nights. That is the sons of Korah, a group that we had previously met and refers to a Levite by the name of Korah who had a family, had some sons. If you may remember, he rebelled against the leadership of Moses and tragically the judgment of God fell upon him. Well, Korah evidently had some sons and they took their stand against their own dad and because of that stand, God greatly blessed the sons of Korah. They went on to become men of renown in the congregation of the nation of Israel. So we got Maskell and we also got the sons of Korah. Also tonight we run into a new word and that's the word Shoshanim. The Bible said there or the superscription says there to the chief musician upon Shoshanim. Now, what in the world is Shoshanim? Well, you can read down if you have a Schofield Bible. But the word actually means lilies, lilies. Uh, flowers, beautiful flowers. So here uh, we have these beautiful flowers that grow in abundance around the land of Palestine. Lilies in the land of Israel were spring flowers. They reached the peak of their beauty and their fragrance in the spring months of the year. And we're also told that this psalm is a song of loves. Now, let's kind of put all this together. Now, when we think about lilies, you think of spring. When you think about spring and lilies, you think about love. And when you think about love, then you come to weddings. So really what this psalm is about tonight, how many of y'all got that? Anybody get that? Shut up. Shut your mouth. Good, good for y'all. Well, this psalm is about a wedding. I've already had five weddings this year, and I've got seven more before the year is through. Some of the funnier things that have ever happened to me in my ministry have happened during weddings. I could tell you some stories of some things that have gone on during a wedding. One of the funniest things, and I think about this, maybe I've talked about it too much, but on one occasion when I was doing a wedding, this was down at the old church, and I step forward to have everybody to stand. You know, when the bride comes in, have everybody to stand. So I'm standing there. The wedding party's kind of back behind me. And uh, when I step forward to have everybody to stand up, here she comes down the aisle. Well, her fiancé or her husband-to-be started shaking real bad. And then not only did he start shaking, but then he started shouting. And, you know, I saw her too, and I really didn't see all that much to shout about, just to be honest with you, but... You know, as they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That was an unusual thing that happened to me during a wedding. I've also had them to pass out 
during weddings. I remember vividly a wedding that we had on one occasion, and I mean two of the bridesmaids or ladies that were standing to my right, they just went down right in the middle of the ceremony. You say, what'd you do? We just kept going, man. That's okay. They're still breathing. And so we just kept moving right along. I mean, man, I've had some weddings. I'm telling you that were blowout weddings where no expense was spared. And then I've had some very simple weddings where people just met me in the office and, and I married them. One of the more unusual requests is one request that I had this year when somebody called me and asked, them, asked me if I could marry them online. And I was thinking to myself, how do you marry somebody online? Because you have to fill out the paperwork and do all that stuff. So uh, uh, I, I wish somehow or another that all through the years, 37 years now of uh, preaching and pastoring, I wish that I'd kept up with all the couples that I'd married. I just wonder, going all the way back to, to uh, 1987, I just wonder how many of those people are still together today. You know, marriage is something that we make a lot of jokes about. We make a lot of, poke a lot of fun at being married. I heard about this one guy, they were talking about their wives, and one guy looked over there and said, my wife's an angel. He said, mine's still living. That's better than Thire's joke. I mean, you got to admit that. Lazy boy, you kidding me? I heard about this uh, man and his wife one time. They were getting ready to walk into a bank. And so as they opened the door, to their surprise, a guy stepped out. He had a mask on, waving a gun around, a sack of money in his hand. They were starting into the bank. There was a couple of men standing there. And the guy with a sack on his hand, a gun in his hand, with a mask on his face, said, did y'all see me rob this bank? Said that to one of those men. And uh, uh, the man said, yes, sir. He just shot him dead on the spot. He looked over at the other guy said, did you see me rob this bank? He said, yes, sir. He just shot him dead on the spot. He looked at that man and his wife standing there and said, did you see me rob this bank? man said, no, but my wife did. <laughs> you know, we poke a lot of fun at marriage. I've said all that to say this tonight. This psalm is about a wedding. It is an earthly wedding between the king, the king of Israel, and his bride, now, some people in this psalm see in this psalm uh, the wedding of King Solomon as he married the daughter of Pharaoh. Wrong move, wrong move. Uh, saved people are not supposed to yoke up with unsaved people. Can I have an amen? And you say, preacher, I know that was good years ago. No, friend, that's still good tonight. God's people have no business entering into a marital yoke with an unsaved person. I'm telling you, you may say, preacher, I'm going to get him in or get her in and I'm going to get him saved. Let me tell you something, uh, that, that may happen, maybe just a fraction of a percent uh, uh, at a time, but more often than not, they pull you down. You don't pull them up. And first thing you know, you're out of church, out of the will of God, or you've gone through a divorce and uh, heartbreak and misery. And if you'd have never got in that situation to start with, one of the first questions you ought to ask anybody before you ever go out on a date with them is, are you saved? It's not what kind of car they drive or how good she looks. What matters most, are they saved? Is there any spiritual compatibility there? That's all that matters when it comes to the people of God. Can I have an amen? That's still true to this day, friend. The Bible said we're not to be unequally 
unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Well, some see in Psalms 45 the marriage of King Solomon to the daughter of Pharaoh. I got to tell you something. I bet you that was some kind of a royal shindig, don't you? I mean, there's Solomon with all that that he had and then the, uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt and his daughter and all that they had. Oh, brother, you talk about a blowout. I bet it was a blowout. Others see in this psalm the wedding of King Hezekiah. As he takes his bride, we know her name. Her name was Hebzibah. Found out something unusual uh, uh, that I didn't know about Hebzibah. Most people believe that Hebzibah, which name means pleasant, was the daughter of the prophet Isaiah. Hezekiah and Isaiah had a special relationship, and most people think they were best friends, and he wound up marrying his best friend's daughter. Boy, that was probably a big deal if this wedding was about Hezekiah and Hebzibah. I don't know about all that. Then we're told also that Psalms 45 is a messianic psalm. And what that simply means is that this psalm is a prophecy about the Messiah, about the Savior. Now, we know what prophecy is. Prophecy is history that is written down before it actually happens. Well, if this be a messianic psalm and it's about a wedding, then it lifts this whole thing to a, to a higher level because we know that one day that there is going to be a wedding in the sky. Can I have an amen? We know that one day the Lord Jesus himself, the King of Kings, is going to take himself a bride, and we know that bride to be the church of the living God. Those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus, whose garments have been made white like the snow, who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, they are a part of the bride of Christ. Now let me lay all that out for you, how that's going to happen. We know that the next event on God's prophetical calendar is the rapture of the church. Can I have an amen? Not the rupture. The church is already ruptured. We're talking about the rapture of the church. That's when the Lord is going to appear and remove his church from off of the earth. Now, I'm not of this persuasion today, this new philosophy and, and thought that's going around that uh, the church is going to have to go through the tribulation period. I'm not at all. I'm not at all. I'm not at all. I don't believe that at all. Do you? I mean, the Bible said that God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to have to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. In fact, the Bible said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 that God had saved us from the wrath to come. Don't sound like to me we're going to have to go through it. The rapture of the church. And let me just say this. You say, but the church is so wicked and so, so ungodly. I know, but listen to this. God got Lot out of Sodom before the judgment fell. In fact, can I tell you this? As carnal and as worldly as Lot was in Sodom, God, those angels, told Sodom, we can't do anything until thou come hither. The one thing that was holding back the wrath of God upon Sodom was God had to get his youngins out before the judgment could fall. And brother, if God's going to get Lot out of that, can I have an amen? Hey, God's going to get you and me out of this world uh, this world before the second term of Joe Biden. Oh, or the tribute. I'm kidding. I, don't, I didn't set a date there. Not on your life. But I am telling you what. We know the rapture is the next event on God's calendar. Then there's a seven-year period of unprecedented time here upon the earth. 
when the great tribulation period sets in upon this earth with the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet and the ungodliness that goes on in the world. It's a time of unprecedented trouble for seven years upon the earth. Meanwhile, in heaven, the church, the bride, is going to go through the judgment seat of Christ. And let me tell you this. It is during that time that the bride, the church, is going to get cleaned up. Now, I think you understand right now, the church is not, all, not at all presentable to the groom. We got our problems as a church, don't we? In fact, in the Bible, in the Bible, those problems, uh, those, those acts of disobedience are referred to as spots and wrinkles. Now, there's not a girl in this world I got seven more to go this year, and I guarantee you we could parade all seven of them brides up here tonight and say, would you walk down that aisle with a pizza stain on your wedding dress? And I tell you, every one of them would shout it out. Shout it out. Every, that's better than lazy, boy. I got to tell you, that's better than lazy. Anyway, they'd want to get, they're not going to walk down this aisle in a spotted wedding garment. They're not even going to walk down this aisle in a wrinkled wedding. You know why? They want everything to be, be right. They want to be beautiful when they walk down the aisle. And I've never seen an ugly bride. I've seen some that just barely made it, but I've never seen one. And, and, and they, want to be, they want to be as perfect as a sinful, flawed human being can be when they walk down the aisle. Well, ladies and gentlemen, when the wedding is going to take place in heaven, the bride is not going to stand there before the groom with spots all over the wedding gown and wrinkles. All that is going to be taken care of at the judgment seat of Christ. Here's what we read about that in the book of Ephesians. The Bible said that he might present it, the bride. He, God, might present it, the bride, to himself, a glorious church, not having what? Spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Where's all that going to get taken care of? Where are we going to get the spots at? Hey, where's God, where's God going to get his heavenly iron out and get out all the wrinkles? I'll tell you where, at the judgment seat of Christ. And then after that takes place, guess what? There's going to be a wedding in the sky. We are heading for a wedding in the sky. Now, with all that said, if this is a messianic psalm, then it kind of elevates this thing from more than just a king and an earthly bride to the king of kings and the bride, the church. So with that being said now, let's kind of get into this psalm. And here's the amazing thing about it. Verse 1 all the way down through verse number 8 speaks about the groom. And then beginning in verse number 9, going through the rest of the chapter, that's where the bride comes in. So tonight I have only two points for the message. Can you believe it? Two points, and each one have got six subpoints under them. <laughs> yep. At least we ain't in Psalms 119. Could be a lot worse. So let's get started in this psalm tonight. Verse 1 down through verse number 8. I want to talk a little bit about the majesty of the groom, the majesty of the groom. Now here they are, the wedding's getting ready to take place, and the writer of this psalm is writing all this down, of course under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says there in verse number one, my heart is indicting a good manner. Now what does that word indicting mean? Well, it simply means this, it means over, 
overflowing. It is an overabundance. What he sees, in, in essence, is bubbling up. He's overwhelmed by the majesty of all that is about to take place. And he picks up his pen and he begins to write feverishly and fervently about what he is experiencing in this grand and glorious uh, wedding scene. He has a great and burning desire, he says. My heart is indicting. It's overflowing. It's, there's a overwhelmed. It is on fire, he says. I've got to tell you what is about to happen. We would probably say something like this. He is so full, he cannot get the words out fast enough to tell the story. And then he begins to describe what he's seeing. Now here's the thing that amazes me a little bit about this wedding that is taking place in Psalms 45. The, the amazing thing is the whole wedding is about the groom and not about the bride. Now, I don't know, in our hometown newspaper where I'm from, I don't know if it's still this way or not, but I remember when I was growing up in our hometown newspaper uh, up in Mount Airy, when somebody got married, they went into great detail about everything that happened during the wedding. And let me tell you something, it was nothing said about the groom. We hope he showed up. Paper didn't say nothing about it. It was all about the bride. And here's how it kind of went, you know. She wore this. She was veiled with that. She carried these kind of flowers in her bouquet. She, uh, uh, she, uh, uh, she had these many attendants on her side. and They all dressed in this color. It was all about her. You know something, guys? It don't even matter. I don't even think we even showed up. If we just kind of phoned it in, I think it would be all right as far as we most wedding people are concerned. It's not about the groom. It is about the bride. Nobody stands up when the groom comes in. You know why? I come in with them. Nobody ever stands up when we come in. In fact, can I tell you this? I mean, outside of the photographer, don't even anybody even act like they're glad the groom's there. I mean, man, it's just like hey, hey, the groom and the preacher walks in, hey, 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 and they don't care. But then they chime the hour. If it's two o'clock, dong, dong, the back doors swing open, and the preacher says, "Will you all rise?" And everybody in the building stands and turns. And looks at the bride. You know why? Weddings, in our Western way of thinking, are all about the bride. Oh, but bless your heart, friend, the wedding that we're going to, it ain't about the bride. It's all about the groom. If you'll begin in verse number 2 and just work down through verse number 8, there are some wonderful things that are said about the majesty of the king. Now I know, I get it. This is probably in reference. I don't even, maybe the writer didn't even know this, but as he wrote these words, the Holy Spirit had in mind that future wedding that's about to take place yonder in the sky. So he begins to write, and here's several things that he says about the groom. First of all, he talks a little bit about the looks of the groom. Now, of course, in our day again, uh, nobody cares about how the groom looks. It's all about the bride. Yet, in verse number two, he said this, Thou art fairer than the children of men. You know something? When the Lord Jesus came the first time in his incarnation to dwell among men, here's what we read about the looks of our Savior. The Bible said he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. When Jesus came into this world the first time, he was just an average. Now, of course, he was God, 
but he just like the, looked like an average. Though the Bible said there was no, there was, uh, no form nor calmness. Uh, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, when people saw him, I mean, they just thought of an average individual. And by the way, aren't you glad that God loves average people? Amen. There ain't too many of us men in here as I look around tonight look like Fabio. There ain't too many women in this room tonight that look like Miss America and cook like Betty Crocker. I mean, we're just pretty much average, aren't you? You know, God sure must love average people because he sure did make a whole lot of them, didn't he? Can I have an amen? And when Jesus came into this world, I mean, he didn't like some of these pictures, you know. Was, was it Holman Hunt who painted that picture of Jesus standing at the door knocking and he had that halo, that glow uh, around his head? Oh, no, that's not what he looked like. Why, the Bible said when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Oh, but ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, when it comes to that wedding, that future wedding in the sky, he's going to be fairer than the sons of men. We're going to see him in all of his glory and in all of his beauty. Oh, he's, a, he's, he's, he's handsome. Oh, brother, nobody has ever seen anybody that looks like Jesus. I'm reminded, let me just read this. I'm moving on, but let me just read this. Over the Song of Solomon, remember when they asked that Shunammite girl, they said, what is thy beloved more than another, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge? What makes your beloved so special? And then she begins to tell. Here's what she said. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousands. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a ray. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water washed with milk and fitly. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like, like lilies, dropping sweet smell of it. His hands are go. You say, preacher, what's all that mean? It means he's the hunk of all hunks. That's exactly what it means. Oh, his looks. The rider was overcome with how the king looked. Then he talks not only about his looks. Here's my favorite thing. He talks about his lips. Look again at verse number two. He said, grace is poured into thy lips. Boy, aren't you glad that grace was poured into the life of our king and therefore proceeded out of his lips? The words of the Lord Jesus were words of grace. In the book of John, chapter number 7, and verse number 46, we read these words, Never, never man spake like this man. What words of grace Jesus spoke. He said to the lepers, the word cleansed. He looked at the sick and said, healed. He looked at troubled seas and said, be still. He looked at the dead and said, arise. He looked at the deaf and said, hear. He looked at the blind and said, see. And he, thank God he looked at the lost and said, forgiven. I'm telling you, those are words of grace. Sing them over to me again, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life, words of life and duty. Teach me faith and duty, wonderful words, wonderful words. Aren't you glad that from his lips proceed the words of grace? Amen. Well, y'all ain't getting this. I got, got stirred up about this wedding. His lips... His looks, look at verse 3 and verse number 5, his limits. Look at verse 3. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Now notice in this text, his, his sword is by his side. 
But when we read over in the book of the Revelation, when he comes back again, that sword is going to be in his hand. Right now it's in his sheath. Right now it's all about grace. But you reject God's grace, friend, one of these days you'll face the sword of God's judgment. He has his limits. There are lines that have been drawn and we dare not cross over those lines. His limits, notice this, his legacy. Look, if you will, again at verse number 6, the Bible said, uh, well, in verse number 2, the Bible said, Therefore God hath blessed thee for Ever. Aren't you glad that our God has blessed you? Down in verse number 6, it says His throne is forever. His kingdom is forever. I'm here to tell you, friend, the Lord Jesus is, is, is a forever God. We didn't vote Him in and we can't vote Him out and He'll never have to step down or resign and He'll never get fired. Thank God He is forever, the Bible said. His legacy. What about this? Look again. His likes. Look down at verse number uh, 6. Uh, verse 7. Thou lovest righteousness. Boy, Jesus loved. The king loves right. Look at his loaths. Look again at verse number 7. He hateth wickedness. He loves right and he hates wrong. Can I have an amen? He loves right and he hates sin. And then I like this, verse 7, his likeness. The Bible said, Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Can I tell you something about our king? He's a joyful king. You know, I think a lot of people think of God as some kind of cosmic killjoy who's sitting up in heaven mad and ticked off at everybody. He ain't like some of us in this church. He ain't mad and ticked off at everybody. He don't walk around with a snarl on his face. He's not just waiting for somebody to mess up so he can put it on Facebook. Hey, can I tell you this? He is a God, according to verse number 7, that's been anointed with the oil of gladness. He's a joyful God. He's not a hateful God. Some of y'all, some of us, let me just say us, some of us need to learn that, that you can live for God and not be hateful. <laughs> You're welcome. You can live for God and smile once in a while. You don't have to walk around with a scowl on your face like your mom-in-law's just moved in with you, like you just ate a dead pi dill pickle. Somebody said, you know what mixed emotions are? Let me tell you what mixed emotions are. Watching your mother-in-law drive off the cliff in your new Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> Hate to lose that Jeep. I'm telling you, friend, he is a glad, a joyful God. Can I have an Amen. It's all about Him, all about Him. But we leave now, beginning in verse 9, we leave His majesty. And now we begin to read a little bit about her royalty. Her royalty. Because in verse 9, the scene kind of shifts, though it's still really all about Him. We kind of shift now that scene, and at least she is mentioned here a couple, a couple of times uh, in the latter part of this chapter. And it's more about how she responds to her king. And by the way, can I tell you this? That's the way it ought to be. I said a moment ago, it's not about us, it's about Him. But it is about how we should respond to the majesty of our King. Can I have an amen? How should we respond to such a, uh, respond to such a majestic King? How should you and I react 
to a king of that nature. Well, uh, beginning in verse 9, and I'll just throw these at you and we'll go, but there are several things that are mentioned in verse number 10 and following about how she ought to act toward her king. And this is the way the church should act toward their king. How many of y'all are with me? How many of y'all want to go home? Just want to go home? Okay. No, Brother Bob, Brother Bob said, no, misunderstood there. Let's don't go home. So how should we, notice in verse number 10, notice what she should receive. Look at verse 10. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. You know what that verse is teaching us? Oh, she ought to listen to the king. She ought to hang on every word that the king has to say. You know, that ought to be true of the church in our day. Every one of us that are saved, and I said us, Every one of us that are saved tonight, we ought to hang on every word. We ought to incline our ear. We ought to consider and listen to what the king has to say. We ought to receive his word tonight. We ought to be in tune with him. We ought to walk according to the dictates of this Bible right here. We are to what we are to receive. Look at verse 11, uh, verse 10. Not only what we are to receive, but what we are to reject. Notice what he said to her in verse 10. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. You know what he's telling? Forget about the past. The past is over. The past is gone. Hey, you got a brand new life waiting on you. You got a life in the presence of, you're going to be living in the palace with the king. You need to forget about all that former life. Can I stop and just say this tonight because of the graciousness, because our king has grace poured out from his lips? Thank God we can forget about our past. How many of y'all got a past you'd rather forget about? Sit in church sometime and the devil starts taking a trip down with you down memory lane and rolling you over here and reminding you of this place, that person and that thing that you did. But aren't you glad tonight because of the words of grace that come from the lips of our king, we can forget all about the past. Forget about it. It's gone. It's in the past. It's under, as they sing, it's under the blood. Amen. You know, there are several things we find in the Old Testament about our sins. The psalmist said in Psalms 103.12 that the Lord has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Micah said this, that God took all of our sins and sealed them up in a bag. Job said that. Micah said that God has taken our sins and cast them into the sea. I got one better than that. I got what old John said the day he was baptized in sloshing water everywhere in the Jordan River. And he said, yonder is the Lamb of God that taketh away. Your sins are not as far as the east is from the west. Your sins are not in a bag. Your sins are not in the sea. Because of the grace and the blood of our Savior, our sins are gone. Forget about the past. Forget about it. Man may not forget about it, but thank God we can forget about it. So what he said, receive and then reject. And then look at verse 11, reverence. We ought to reverence the king. Look at that last phrase of verse number 11. Worship thou him. Oh, that's what we ought to do. We ought to reverence our king. We ought to worship thou him. We ought to bow in his presence. We ought to come before his presence with an attitude of worship. Worship thou him. And then I like this and I'm done. But look down at verse 16. He said this. So you receive, you reject, you reverence. And then he said this. We ought to reproduce. Look what he said in verse 6. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children. In other words, he's saying to her, me and you, when we get together, there ought to be some children. You know what he's saying? 
He is saying when you come into the family, you need to begin to produce children. And how true is that of me and you? When we come into God's family, we come into God's family as a child, but we ought to bring other children into God's family. Can I have an amen? We ought to bring other children into the family of God. I told you this. I preached on this one time, and Miss Megan is here tonight. She married my son, Seth, and they got married, and, and she said yes to Seth. And this is true. This is true not only of, of, of Megan, but it's true of Jordan. But it's, it's, it's a different setting because it's a daughter. And when she said yes to the son, we took her into our family. And she's got privileges in our family that if you came and you tried to do some of them privileges that she's got because she said yes to the son, you come to the house and grab the remote and see what happens. <laughs> you, <laughs> you come to the house and open up the refrigerator. Somebody's going to say, excuse me, can I help you? But she's got the right to get into the cabinet and get the Nutella out if she wants to. You know why? She said yes to the son. And guess what happened? After she said yes to the son, she started bringing children into the family. You'll get it later. I got new children. We got new life. And the fact Christmas is happy again at the Gammons household. You know why? Got little babies running around in the house. She said yes to the son, started bringing children into the family. And you know something? When we say yes to God's king, the Lord Jesus, and we become a part of the bride of the family, we enjoy privileges this world don't know. This world can't get on their knees and call out in the name of Jesus and get into the very presence of God. They don't know anything about that. Come on. Hey, friend, we got that privilege, and we also have the privilege of bringing children into the family. Well, that didn't help you as much as it helped me, but it helped me a little bit. There's going to be a wedding. Amen. And until then, may we reverence our King. Did you get it? Did you see it? Or was I making all that up? Only the shadow knows. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you for this great...